Well, as most of you know, a couple weeks ago, I was in Denver, Colorado, for our annual midwinter conference. And this midwinter conference is something uh, the clergy in our denomination do every year. Uh, usually it's in Chicago, sometimes it's in Denver, San Diego, wherever. But the idea is to meet together. We do some continuing education stuff, some just maintaining collegial relationships, a lot of worship and rest and renewal kind of stuff. And there's a particular group of people that I I, I hang with a little tighter uh, when I go to those meetings, and there are other church planters whom um, some of you have even met because we've gone kind of through the process of church planting together. And now that we're in our sixth year as a church, uh, and, and me and these guys have been starting this process maybe eight years ago when we first started meeting together, we have a real close relationship. So I was just thinking through the lens of being a church planter, and as I came to prepare for this message, looking at 1 Corinthians, it just dawned on me afresh. I mean, of course, we all knew this before, but 1 Corinthians is written by a church planter. Uh, if not the first ever church planter, certainly the best known church planter, and that's, of course, the Apostle Paul. And the other thing about Apostle Paul that you probably remember is that before he was a church planter, Paul was a church persecutor. He was an extremely well-educated Pharisee, a teacher of the Jewish law and customs. He was passionate and zealous to make sure that God was worshipped through the keeping of the law, the keeping of the ethical code. And as a Pharisee, Paul believed that if he could get the people following the rules of God and following Torah, that God would then come back. He would be so pleased that God would come back and rescue Israel from Roman oppression. Now, when Jesus was crucified as an insurrectionist and as a threat to the religious establishment, the Pharisees must have thought that the little Jesus movement, this little band of disciples, would simply disperse and die out, because that's what every other revolutionary and their disciples, that was their fate as well. But after a while, rumors began to spread, crazy talk about a resurrection now, as a Pharisee, Paul wholeheartedly believed in the resurrection. But as an Orthodox Jew, the idea of resurrection was this. God would come back to earth. He would come and show himself as king, and he would resurrect all people to judgment. And all of the people who uh, were God's people would be resurrected into eternal life. Now, the rumors of this resurrection were strange because they told of the resurrection of just one man, this Jesus, the so-called hack Messiah, who had been humiliated and shamed through death on a Roman cross. Surely this rumor was madness. But then things began to happen. People were being transformed. People described this process as hearts being strangely warmed. Their trust was put in a crucified, risen Jesus. There was no way to prove that Jesus was king. He wasn't there to look at in the flesh any longer, but yet he seemed to be reigning like a king in this new group of people, people who were known to the locals as the way and later on as Christians, which literally means little Christ's. Paul was furious when he realized that this was more than just a sect of Judaism, when he realized that these people of the way were worshiping Jesus, Paul flew off the handle. Because as an Orthodox Jewish Pharisee, he knew that there was only one God and only one worthy of worship, and that was Yahweh alone. So Paul made it his business to hunt down the church 
to persecute them. He even watched in agreement as Stephen, one of the early Christian martyrs, was stoned to death. And one day, on his way to persecute the church in Damascus, Paul was confronted by Jesus himself. And it was there that Paul has a hard time, when you read him, he has a hard time explaining what actually happened, but his heart somehow shifted that day. His heart was warmed, it, it opened, his mind was opened, his life was forever changed. And it was there that he realized all of his learning, all of his passion, all of his position in society, all of his efforts in life were misguided. Actually, they were going against the will of God whom he so wanted uh, to, to honor. So from then on, Paul forsook his titles and his position And instead, Paul found his identity in the one who called him, the one who equipped him, the one who forgave him, the one whose Holy Spirit lived inside him. And that's why when you read the letters of Paul, he often opens them with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He doesn't say Paul, PhD in theology, a leader of this synagogue and this synod and blah, blah, blah. His whole identity from now on, even as great a man as Paul was, is I am one Sent by God, called by God. Paul lost almost everything worldly, his title, his position, his friendship group. At one point early in his ministry, some dudes tried to kill Paul, and he had to run up north and live there for years, learning the ways of Jesus. And everywhere Paul went, he preached this offensive message of a God who became a Jewish carpenter, who died on a Roman cross and rose from the grave in a body. Foolishness. Foolishness to the Greeks and to the Jews alike. In the early 50s AD, Paul brought the good news of Jesus to the people in Corinth, down in the southern end of Greece on this isthmus between the Ionian Sea and the Aegean Sea. It's important that we remember these things, geography, history, Because it takes 1 Corinthians or any book of the Bible from being just this thing that we talk about to a real thing that happened. That's important. Paul was a guy who met Jesus, who was transformed, who preached the gospel in this little town on an isthmus in Greece that was a Roman colony. It was a wealthy seaport and truly multi-ethnic and multicultural. It was similar maybe to a boomtown in the Wild West during the gold rush. Lots of money, Lots of individualism and few guiding ethics, few community structures, and very little accountability. The social capital of the day was money, sex, power, information who controlled those highways and byways of information, and political connection. And just in our small group on Wednesday, we were thinking about, well, what are the big uh, power brokers of today? What are the big companies? Google? right? Controls information. Either ways, they, 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 and Amazon, right? Because Amazon can get you whatever you want. It's a a luxury society, a me-first society. Um, Within two days, free shipping for $75 a month. You can get all these shows on TV and anything on your doorstep. Pretty soon, they'll have drones dropping them off for you, all right? And even in this decadent setting of low uh, community connections and high corruption rates, even in this setting, the gospel of Jesus went forth. People began to change, and a church was planted there. Paul spent 18 months with this fledgling church, discipling people, 
teaching them, nurturing them in the ways of Jesus. In a culture with strict lines between social classes of rich and poor, those who are connected and those who are complete strangers, of women and men and Jews and Gentiles and Romans and Greeks, the church and the power of the Spirit was the one place where there was level ground. It's the place where in Christ, people were just brothers and sisters, not superiors or servants, And it wasn't just a religion, it was a transformative movement that had implications on economics and culture, ethics and sociology and and family structure. The gospel changes everything. Let's say that together. The gospel changes everything. If you're like me, pretty much every day you wish something was different about you in a good way. The gospel changes everything. It's pervasive power. It can change your past and your present. It can change the way you view the world, the way you view yourself, the way you view other people. It is the power of new life in Christ. Paul was bringing it, and it transformed this community in Corinth. And we know that after Paul left Corinth to go plant other churches and tend to his flocks in other places, some of the people began to slip back into their old ways. It's easy to do. You've done it. I do it. We hear the good news, we're transformed to a degree, and then commercials, TV, the workplace, culture just has, culture's not bad, it just is what it is. It's the water we swim in, it's the air we breathe, and it has a way of tainting and shading and shaping the gospel in ways that are not healthy. And for these Corinthians, they became ashamed that their God and Savior died on a cross. That's not very heroic compared to the other Greek myths going around in the day. And it's not very cool in a, in a culture like Rome where power, the eagle on top of a standard, the empire was everything. I, I'm kind of embarrassed to follow this, this Jewish guy who was crucified on a Roman cross. My friends at the pub are giving me a hard time about this. The lawyers I work with are ribbing me about this that my God is somehow insufficient. And so these Corinthian Christians began to look for human leaders that were a little more presentable than Jesus. And from what we know, Paul wasn't the most physically attractive guy uh, that's been inferred by some people. I don't know what he looked like. Even his statues, he's kind of frumpy. And so they, they began to divide into little groups. Well, we are gonna focus on this guy, Apollos. Have you heard Apollos talk? Great Christian speaker silver tongue, smooth. And then other groups were saying, we're going to follow Peter. You know why? Because Peter was one of the inner three with Jesus, and he's the rock on which the church is going to be built on. And still others were loyalists. You know, they're like the golden retrievers on the temperament sort of thing. And they're like, we're going to be with Paul. He planted this church. We're sticking with him. And then there's other people that were so superior. They're like, we're the only ones really following Jesus. I'm sure they use that accent too. But so, so they had all of these, these factions going on, all of this infighting. And what is the root of infighting, I ask myself as I read this? What is the cause of jealousy? Why do divisions even form in the church? They still do today. Why do they form in the, in the office environment or in schools? You just go, go volunteer at a school if you don't already or work in one. You just see the cliques already. They start, they form so early. I think primarily it's a function of fear and insecurity. It's interesting that... It, if it's a function of fear and insecurity, it's interesting that the word says that love casts out all division, violence, 
hatred, clicks. It doesn't, say, it doesn't say that. It says love casts out fear. And I think there's something significant there because the opposite of love isn't violence. It isn't these other things. It might just be something to do with apathy or fear, this insecurity, this drive inside of us that tells us we've got to cling on to things we can control so that we can find our identity in this group or in this achievement or whatever it is. Fear and insecurity cause an emotional fight or flight situation. And so we team up, we circle the wagons, we find people like us, and we shut the world out. So what would Paul, the church planter, the pastor, I mean, you read his works, you know he lo- he's a lover of God and a lover of people. What would he say to people who, who are just lost in their identity, who are clinging to status symbols rather than finding their identity in Jesus? He'd say, you're okay come here, buddy. It's all right. (laughs) That's what we're tempted to say. Let's find out what he really says here. Uh, Stand with me, please, as we read the letter of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go in chapter 1, 26 through uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Paul writes, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of people, but on the power of God. Let it be so for us this evening, Lord Jesus, as we have, even in reading this, proclaimed good news. Would you help us to come to grips with who we really are, whether that means a a humbling that needs to take place, or whether we have a woefully too low view of ourselves, and we need to remember that we are image bearers of the living God. Holy Spirit, we entrust you with this ministry of um, conviction or comfort to whatever degree we need it, and we pray uh, that you would do your work in us as we submit to your word. Amen. You may be seated. From my personality and my stance toward pastoral care, it is always a temptation I have to check in myself to want to comfort, to as soon as I hear someone's having a hard time or thinking something about themselves, I want to I embrace. I want to, it's okay, you know, and, and just get in there and get all lovey. So yeah, you're, you probably don't, you want to cancel that appointment with me now, right? Uh, <clears throat> 
You might expect a kind and loving pastor to comfort people who are showing signs of fear and insecurity with words of, you're okay, it's not that bad, Jesus loves you, I know, the Bible tells me so, that kind of thing. That is not what Paul does in the beginning of of what he's saying. After all, if you've ever been in a place where you're doubting your worth, I mean, if you've really been in that place, you know darn well that people saying, oh, you're okay, just bounces off. It, It doesn't really go deep into your heart. What you need at that point is someone to listen to you, and you need some kind of proof. You need truth. You don't need buttering up. So Paul says, consider your calling. The word calling is, consider your calling. The word consider there is a Greek word, blepo. You know, I'm always trying to teach you words, so say blepo. Uh, It it means look. Like, not the kind of like, look. Like, look in the mirror. Blepo. Look at yourself. Who you were when God called you. Paul says, consider your calling. Look in the mirror. God called you out. He chose you to be his people. He pursued you. And who were you? Let me say that. Who were you when he called you out? When he chose you? Hardly any of you had value in the eyes of the world. Worldly wisdom, power, And all the wealth and status that comes with being born into important families, you didn't have any of those things. Hardly any of you had those things going on for you when God came calling you into his family. You who had little worldly reason to boast in the pub about your new job or in the marketplace or in the political arena, now you're boasting about your newfound position in the church? Really? Are you doing that? You who were on the losing side of the world's game, you're now dividing internally over which human being you're going to follow? Seriously? Get over yourself, as Paul Paul is saying. Look in the mirror. Don't you know that God has actually chosen the weak things, the little people, those who are despised in the eyes of the world? He chose them to shame and to convict the strong people that the strong people might too come to repentance. Now, what's Paul doing here? This isn't very good for the self-esteem, right? And that's a good thing for a while. See, in the Greco-Roman world, society was clearly divided into the haves and have-nots. And there's still remnants of this, um, you know, even though, like, for example, in the UK, in Britain, and we we both speak English, albeit a little bit differently, but it is not out of the ordinary to kind of meet someone at a party here in America and say, oh, what do you do? I mean, it's just kind of like the normal thing. And, and um, you know, you could be standing next to a famous spinal surgeon and you could be a custodian and be like, yeah, I'm sharing a drink with this person or a conversation. And you could find something you have in common with. Maybe you like the Seahawks or whatever it is. Uh, Patriots, Jeff. All right. Excuse uh, me. <clears throat> but uh, you know, that's not out of the ordinary. But it is very uncouth in Britain, even to this day, to meet someone for the first time, second time, third time, and be like, so what do you do? It's just not talked about, because there's still kind of unspoken class structure. Well, multiply that a million times, and that's kind of what we have in the Greco-Roman world. Less than 2% of the population were the upper class. They had money, but they had more than money. They had a name. You see, your family name meant everything. And if you came from a powerful family, it meant you had connections. 
As people in politics, even in our democratic society, will tell you, money can only get you so far. Your real currency in the world is being connected. It's having the ability to do favors for people, pulling strings, so that then they can do favors for you. So you could have a bazillion dollars, but if you don't have the connections and how to spend that money or how to get into these tight-knit circles, you can't get very far in the world. In the ancient world, class structure was almost set in stone, much like the caste system that is supposedly dead in India, but if you know people there, it's still quite alive in lots of sectors. Basically, you're born into a slave class, a free class, senator class, an equestrian class, or you're a kid of the emperor, and you didn't really have much wiggle room. You're pretty much destined to be there unless you did something extremely special. And here comes a guy preaching a gospel, good news of a God who identifies with even the lowest of the low, a God who gave himself that all might be forgiven, a God who promised his own life, his spirit to dwell in us, a God who gave us more than new life. He gave us a new family, the church. A place where when we break bread together, the senator sits down with the longshoreman, the small-time vendor sits down with the philosopher, where class distinctions absolutely melt away and people are brothers and sisters. I, I thought it was cool last week we had a joint service with Fountain Community Church who owns this building and meet here in the morning. We did a joint service and we broke bread together. We had communion together. What an honor, what a special thing. Now imagine... Being in this culture where, uh, let's say your whole family is, believes, starts to believe in the gospel. Let's say Eric and Emily over here um, are quite wealthy. They own a villa. And in this villa, this whole side of the church, you are all employees there. You're slave class. And uh, you, you come up early. You clean up. You do their laundry. You, do all, you watch their kids. They don't even know their kids' names. I mean, that's how it was. <laughs> so it's like they, they, I mean, you don't even look them in the eye. And all of a sudden... The gospel has gripped your hearts. And you come together on Sunday morning, and you're breaking bread together around the communion table and eating with each other and looking each other in the eye. It had to be such a radical shift. And, and then think about how those relationships would play out later on. And we know from uh, Philemon, for example, there was strange, they were still trying to figure it out because then what happens when you go back to work? Uh, you know, you guys still have, like, upper-class stuff to do, like parties to go to and stuff, and all the chores have to get done. you got to do it. But is there a different way you're relating to each other now with maybe more dignity and respect? Isn't that interesting, how that culture came together? But that's absolutely what's going on in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian Christians embrace this new reality. But as what often happens, culture and habits have a way of creeping back in, shading and nuancing the faith. So Paul's point is twofold here. For all those Corinthian Christians who are lower class and are now calling for their rights and boasting in their newfound status, he says, remember where you come from. Remember what you were, who you were when God called you. He never called you because you were great. You are great because he called you. And he called you because he loves you. Now we also know that the Corinthian church, even though it might have mostly been lower class people, it wasn't all lower class people. 
Crispus, one of the men there in the church, he had positional authority because he was a leader in the synagogue before he was converted to Christianity. Aquila and Priscilla had their own villa where they housed, that rhymes, uh, where, they, <laughs> where they hosted a house church. Gaius and Erastus and Stephanus all had wealth and power. And some even had multiple homes where they would house churches or house Apollos and different apostles when they would come visiting. In this letter, these upper-class Christians would be reminded that if God chose the weaker people before they became someone great in the world's eyes, then he also chose these wealthy people based on some different criteria entirely than their wealth or their power. So they who are thinking they're all something of the world, like, oh, we were chosen not because we're great and so wonderful. And, and, and then the Lord, see, so it's a leveling. It's a flattening uh, in the church. And in this letter, they are all reminded on both sides of the coin that they are called by God because of his love for them, not because of what they've done. Now, Paul isn't just comparing social classes within the church, and he isn't just comparing Corinthians to the world. I think what he's doing is reminding these people of the way that God generally has worked throughout all of history. That great nation of, uh, uh, of Israel, where did it come from? It came from a pagan man named Abram who was from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. It sounds like an offensive lineman or something. I from Ur of Chaldeans. And, and he calls this guy who's nothing, who can't have children. He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, dude. Watch me. Trust me. And so, I don't know if God said dude. But anyway, so Abraham came all of this distance uh, through peril and not knowing what lie before him. And he and Sarah trust God and they have a great nation. Now they have like one illegitimate son and then they have one son. And they die before they get to see all of this great nation. And then Isaac and then Jacob. And then does a great nation rise up? No. No, what happens? A bunch of people end up in Egypt and in slavery and great oppression... They begin to multiply, almost like to spite Egypt more than just being a great nation in the first place. And this great nation then, uh, which is not a great nation or anything, until God says, you know what, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to pull you out of slavery. And Deuteronomy 7 is very telling. In this passage, God warns the Israelites, saying basically, okay, listen, I'm going to save you. <laughs> and what's going to happen is I'm going to bring you this land that I've been talking about. It's called the promised land. Uh, people in Bellingham in, in 2015 are going to call it that. And um, here's the deal. Like, all these people already live there. Canaanites and Hittites and all these people that don't like you. Um, and frankly, they could kick your butt. What's going to happen is I'm going to kick their butt. I'm going to move them out of the way for you, and you're going to go there, and it's going to be awesome, like grapes as big as pomegranates, and uh, uh, just a land flowing with milk and honey and all the good stuff, and you're going to think you're pretty special, and you are, because I called you, and you're mine, and that's what makes you special, but after a while, you're going to be tempted to think, we got this land because we're bad, and we got this land because we are better than those people, and God loves us more than those people, and he says, I'm warning you now, Deuteronomy 7, that's not the way this goes down. I'm choosing you because I love you, and I want to put you in this land. I'm doing it, not you, and I'm doing that so that all of these other nations will say, wow, not what a great nation, what a great God they serve. We want to serve that God, and then the blessing will go out to all the nations. It's warning them. In Deuteronomy 7, didn't work out well, did it? Okay, this is the God who chooses to rescue little Israel from uh, the Philistines, 
with David, the youngest of eight brothers, little scrawny dude, little shepherd boy, who goes up against the greatest warrior, a giant of a man in the Philistine army, Goliath, with a huge sword, weighs more than David's whole body. He comes in with five smooth, smooth stones, and a slingshot uses one stone. Bam! Goliath is down because David trusts God. This is a God who always consistently uses the little person, the little country, to do his work. This is a God who actually became flesh in the greatest nation of the world. No, he was born where? In Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the smallest of the tribes. It's a God who, when he became flesh, became the son of a carpenter, and he died on a cross under the fist of the Roman Empire, and under Jewish pride, and under all the powers of hell. And then this is the God who vindicated his son, and to everyone's surprise, he rose him from the grave, and Jesus defeated death, and Jesus now reigns over Rome, which is gone as an empire anymore, and he reigns over Greece, which is well, they need another bailout or something. And, 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 and he reigns over the evil one who's been defeated. And this is the God who chose Paul, the church persecutor, to come, not in flashy outward appearance or flowery speech, but in simplicity and in the power of the Spirit. And Paul is saying, Corinthians, that God who called me is the same God who called you. Remember Paul says, I came to you guys with a simple message on purpose. I didn't want you to mistake me with the other hot airbags, these sophists who are traveling around with their fancy speeches. I don't want to be identified with them. So I came with a simple message about Jesus, who came and died and rose and reigns. And guess what? That was a powerful message because you all believed me. And it's like, oh yeah. I mean, in the Greco-Roman world, what a ridiculous message. Gospel, good news. It, compared to the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon, the power of the Roman Empire, what a foolish message. And yet here is this mixed church with powerful people and weak people all together, and somehow the power of the gospel has changed their hearts. You know what I'm talking about. You're here. It's still working centuries and centuries and centuries later sometimes we need to be reminded of it don't we the world's powerful this is a reminder that being chosen had nothing to do with made them important in the world and that's a reminder that i need all the time so let's just take a few moments to consider what makes a person valuable in the world I've just, I just made up some general categories, and here's one. Personal qualities, all right? So here are some of the things. Personality. Your personality can either, uh, depending on which culture you're in, sometimes an outgoing person is highly esteemed, and sometimes in subcultures an introverted person is uh, seen with much more respect, right? Your character, of course, will always matter. Body type is another one. This is a quality that you're born with that could either be attractive or not. And that is something that the world values. Billions and billions of dollars of value marketing to you and I, telling us we're too small, too fat, too skinny, whatever. Uh, eat this, don't eat that. Wear this makeup, have that haircut, wear these clothes. It's all about image. Another thing, skills. What can you do? That's always been a question the world asks. What can you do more specifically for me? What can you do to contribute to society? 
knowledge. What do you know? What do you know that you can help me with? What do you know that no one else knows that makes you marketable or valuable? Network. This is who do you know? This is who is your family? This is what guilds are you a part of? Rotary, you know, political groups, churches. All of these things are subordinate to one thing, no matter what century you're living in, and that is this question, whose value system? That's the question. Who defines which qualities, which skills, what knowledge, what networks are important? For example, personal qualities. Our warped body image of what makes a beautiful woman is warped. I just said that. Um, If you go back 150 years in Britain, for example, and you look at a catalog for uh, clothing, you will find that the body type that is portrayed as attractive is probably 60 pounds heavier than it is now. Why do we get to decide what, what is beautiful and what isn't beautiful? Men's fashion, men's looks have changed over time. That is entirely a cultural thing, and it changes throughout history. So if you're always trying to match up these qualities, that, by the way, frankly, few of us can even help these things within a few pounds. If you're always trying to match up to a shifting landscape of culture in different times in history, good luck with that, right? Because only a few of us are going to be successful. Skills, what can you do? Uh, my question is, why are some skills more valuable to my culture than others. Why can someone be a wonderful painter or sculptor? Uh, Now, in the Renaissance period, Michelangelo, Leonardo, all these wonderful people who are employed by the church, their whole life work. I mean, they're employed for life to do amazing work. But today, if you are the average artist, good luck with that. But if you are a digital artist or a web designer, now all of a sudden you're valuable. Why? Because you can help people sell things. So why are some skills better paid, uh, more sought after than others? They, it's, the, it's the world, it's the culture that dictates those things. Knowledge, what do you know? It all, that, again, depends on what era you're living in. And, and network, who you know. Um, all of these things. Whose value system are we ranking these on? If our judge is the world, then we absolutely do have reason to boast in a fit body or financial status, if the world is our standard, then we have absolute reason to think much less of ourselves if we don't fit the cultural definition of beauty, if we are not set financially securely. We should be in great anxiety if the world is our standard on those things. The word boast in our passage is more than just bragging in the purely emotional sense. To boast is closer to the idea of putting your faith in something. So if the world sets the standard for what is important in life, and it says that winning is everything, then I'm going to boast in my accomplishments because I've put my faith in my accomplishments. i place my identity in my accomplishments. If the standard is always to be happy, then I'm going to boast in my great therapist, or I'm going to boast in all of the wonderful vacations I take, because I've made it, if that is the standard. But this is where the gospel is both judge and savior. 
The message of Jesus preached by Paul is reality. It's not an opinion, but it's the fact that God has sent King Jesus to reign and to rescue. Jesus sets the standard for what is important, what is valuable in a person, and what is not important or valuable in a person. And that means, and this should be great release to many, that means that boasting in the things of the world is absolutely foolish. If you want to boast in something, boast or put your faith in Jesus, who created you and died for you and rose for you and reigns over the world powers. Put your boasting faith in him because he's the one who gives you worth and value. And what value? The psalmist says, Cease striving and know that I'm God. And I want to say to you, cease striving by the world's standards and know that God loves you. Boast in that. We love to brag about our looks or our accomplishments because we think somehow we've earned them. We don't like to boast in Jesus or to put our faith in him or to find our identity in him. Why? I didn't do anything to earn that one. And at the same time, we do this all the time. We boast in things that we don't really have a stake in, that we haven't really done anything for. I was thinking about sports. Sorry for all you non-sports people. Um, Just go with me, because you know it's true. We boast in our team, even though we never set a foot on the field with that team, I've never once suited up with the Seahawks or the Sounders. And yet, I love it when my team wins. I'm destroyed inside for a few minutes at least when they lose. Why do I boast in them? Why do I ride this emotional roller coaster? I live vicariously through this team. It's it's kind of normal in our culture. Um, And why do we do that? Because no one wants you in the Super Bowl. I'm sorry. No one was saying... um, The Seahawks are on the one-yard line with four downs to punch it through. Why didn't they call Chris Eldridge in? Five foot seven, 178 pounds, 40. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I was 39 during the Super Bowl. No one is calling for that because that would be outlandishly crazy. I mean, it would be slightly less crazy to throw a pass play on first down. You know, you know what else is crazy is no one in their right mind would say sin infected the world because human beings chose to sin. I know. Let's trust in ourselves to get out of this mess. That's crazy. Idiotic. And that's why Paul quotes Jeremiah 9 here at the end. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches but let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have understanding and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for it's in these I delight, declares the Lord. Don't boast in the things of the world. If you're going to boast in anything, boast in knowing God, that he's the faithful covenant keeper who exercises kindness And he marries together justice, which is economic and political justice, 
and righteousness, which is right relatedness between people and people and God. He marries these two things together. And then he says, basically, this is what Paul's getting at in quoting Jeremiah 9, now look to Jesus, your champion. No, you should not be in there on the one-yard line. Uh, No, you are not the cure to human sin. I'm sorry, you're not. But put your faith in your champion, Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, not from the world, and he became to us righteousness, economic justice, political justice, and right-relatedness. He put those things into one word. And, and, and Jesus became to us sanctification, which means he made us holy, set apart a new people of God in his name. And he became for us redemption. That is the term used when someone is bought out of slavery, just like the same thing as when the Israelites are taken out of Egypt. Jesus has become your redemption. He's brought you out of the slavery of sin. That means the slavery of having to do those things all the time that you don't want to do. And out of the consequences of sin, he's rescued you from all of that. The consequences of sin, which is death and separation from God. So if you want to boast in something, if you want bragging rights that actually have substance behind them, rejoice that you are precious in the sight of God. Respect the fact that you, yes, you are made in God's image. And so are the people you encounter every single day. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord for your word that gives us a healthy dose of truth. Thank you for the words of Paul. Look in the mirror. Lord, for those of us who look in the mirror and see ourselves as shameful and horrible and not measuring up to whatever criteria the world has set for us, Lord, help us to see that we, each one of us, is made in your image. That you loved each one of us so much that you chose to become one of us and die a shameful death. You rose and you reign and you call us into your family. Let that reality reign in us, Lord. And for those of us who are looking into the mirror from a position of a power in this world, who are prone to be self-righteous, arrogant. May this be a reality check that we have done nothing to earn your favor. And indeed, it is your favor that is all that matters. Thank you, Lord, for being not just the great leveler, but the resurrector. You are the one who rises, who, who raises us up above even our highest heights of boasting in the world. You call us children of the Father, image bearers of God, the new people of God. Help us now to live into that reality.